0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast from the American Society of Nephrology. Today, we are being joined by Dr. Kennard Javeri, the Associate Chief of Nephrology at Northwell Health. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about what the system, the healthcare system is that you guys run, and just give us a little bit of the scope of what you've been dealing with.
1: Yes, No. So, uh So Northwell Health is a composite of around 23 hospitals in the New York uh, City, Long Island, Westchester area of New York State. Uh, And the two big tertiary hospitals are North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset, New York, and Long Island Jewish Medical Center, a mile away from there. Basically, these are the two largest health system hospitals, uh, tertiary centers that most of the nephrology division that um, I'm part of um, function and take care of patients. Um, So we have a large division of 23 nephrologists that uh, take care of patients in these two hospitals with eight uh, fellows fellowship program. Uh, So we were right in the midst of this epicenter, um, uh, this epidemic here in New York, and we were able to see tons of patients that came in through both these hospitals, and um, and also had a, a lot of acute kidney injury associated with these patients. So that's how nephrology got very involved, as you probably heard from other centers. Certainly. Tell us about what time, uh, give us a time
0: frame of when things really started to ramp up for you guys.
1: Yeah, actually, it all started probably um, early March or so. And I still remember I was on call that one weekend and I remember going to the hospital just a month before and it would see a case of amyloidosis or cardiorenal syndrome or some strange cancer drug causing kidney injury um, or heart transplant with kidney injury. And all of a sudden, it was turning into COVID, COVID, COVID and kidney injury. And what just happened here, it just, just basically the whole thing had turned around into a COVID hospital. And it happened within a span of like two weeks without us even realizing how fast this was happening. And I've never seen this happen in the 10 years I've worked here where a place was just turned upside down to make things work um, within like a short period of time. So I would say around early March is when we started noticing some of these things.
0: So I imagine that
1: it's been pretty intense ever since then. I mean, intense uh, is probably an understatement. Um, I couldn't even recognize the people. I would walk into the hospital, you know, all those makeups and gels that people used to have were gone by and replaced by N95s and surgical masks. All these nice suits and dresses were all replaced by scrubs and surgical gowns. All the ICUs were turned into just medical ICU beds. There were ICUs popping Mm up at places where we didn't even think there would be ICUs. even our auditorium, which used to have a conferences, was turned into a hospital bed. Um, and, you know, that was the environment we entered uh, as a nephrologist. Um, and then we had to deal with our uh, arena of seeing kidney disease within that whole system.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about that, what you experienced and what you saw. We're going to get to your study in, in just a little bit, but just give us a feel for what it was like as a nephrologist on the front line.
1: Yeah, so uh, we didn't. Uh, we kind of anticipated an increased surge in nephrology consult. I'm glad we did, so we were very well prepared. Probably like mid February to end of February, we were watching what was happening in China and uh, Italy, and we, you know, uh, in anticipation, had prepared ourselves to be in in the hospital more than the outpatient. So um, to de-stress what could have happened, but uh, compared to say you know getting five or six consults a day on average we were getting 15 consults a day um and all of them covid related consults so we had almost like a 30 to 40% increase in number of consultations of kidney injury they were very severe kidney injury requiring like dialysis the very next day so this was not like one of your consults that you would get and you know not have to worry too much about the patient um uh, but this was like really, really sick patients getting into kidney injury. And we I would say we had anticipated that it would be around 20% or 25% of patients we were getting called for, for kidney injury. But that was what caught us into looking at the numbers specifically.
0: Okay. And it turned out to be much higher, didn't it?
1: Correct. Yeah. So when we studied it, it systematically, in a recent publication, uh, we found it to be 37% at all kidney injury for all hospitalized patients in uh, the 13 hospitals we studied in our health system. So that's around 36.6% was the exact number.
0: Well, just tell us real quickly what exactly, you know, what were the parameters of the study that you did then and and, uh, and where it has been published?
1: Yeah, so this study looked at acute kidney injury um rate and timing and outcomes of hospitalized patients with covid in um, 13 academic centers in our health system um it was published in kidney international it was around um, 5000 or a little bit more than that patients admitted uh aki developed probably uh 37% 36.6 exactly so 1993 patients and more yeah. importantly, stage 3 acute kidney injury was in 31.1%. And of those, 14.3% required dialysis. So that's a pretty big number. So out of all the patients in the hospital, 5.2% required renal replacement therapy. And what was even more surprising was the, the uh, patients who were on respiratory failure on mechanical ventilation, um, yeah. they actually developed uh, AKI much more than the ones who are not ventilated. So I would say around 90% of them. When I was going through your study and I got to that,
0: you you guys qualified it at 89.7% of those on the ventilators. And I was just stunned by that number. I imagine you guys were too.
1: Yes, we were stunned but not completely surprised. What was more interesting was the timing of AKI was around peri-intubation. So it, the most of the AKI that happened also happened around the time of intubation, and that's the you know we show that in a nice figure. And this is, I think it's it's nothing to do with my I don't think it's anything to do with the virus itself. I think it's just how sick these patients are getting around the time of them getting intubated because they get this cytokine storm that's happening and the sickness, the blood pressure drop, the toxic you know um, interleukins that are being produced. And all of this is probably affecting the kidney because kidney gets a lot of that blood flow. So it might not be direct virus effect. It probably is just how sick and, you know, toxic these patients are getting when they are getting to the ICU.
0: You did use the term, I think, in your study that it clustered around the time of intubation. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very, very tightly clustered, it seemed, to me as a layperson.
1: No, that was very surprising to us. And, you know, uh, we wanted to really, like, understand that a little bit better. And that's why we kind of looked into those, you know, vented versus non-vented patients to see what was the difference there. Um, yeah. So those those were, like, the real big findings. We didn't uh, – the patients – some of these patients at the time of our study are still in the hospital, I would say, around 39%. So um, – you know it's hard to really uh, comment on the total outcome of these patients but of the ones there we looked at 35% of them actually died so if you had aki you know 35% did die 26 were discharged 26% but there's yeah. still 40% of them in the hospital still
0: and i i know i'm going to ask you to make a prediction that you can't make so i'll just go ahead and put a caveat out there yeah. um i i've talked to many uh nephrologists and in in the last couple of months, who have expressed their their concern that that they don't have a real good feel for how many of these AKI patients will ever regain renal function, um, and and end up being ESRD patients. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that?
1: So we, you know, all of the patients that got AKI in ours, you know, this initial study you know, we did get some patients who got discharged and the terminal creatinine on discharge was 1.7 or so. So there are people who are getting this mild stage one and stage two kidney injury and are getting better and going home. But, you know, we still don't have the full outcome story. I think we have to wait for 30, 40 day outcomes to really, you know, see what the true outcomes of these patients are going to be.
0: We do do a lot of discussion about policy in these podcasts, and this one is not so much about policy, but we have been having this conversation with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and basically signaling to them that probably in June and July, and maybe August, there may be some significant reclassification of patients, um, and yes. that they may see real change.
1: Yes. Well, you know, the only caveat to some of the ones who are on dialysis you know, they do have high high, um, you know, we did have um, patients who uh, had a good, um, I couldn't get an exact number to you, but I would say around 90% of the patients that were requiring dialysis actually did not make it. Yeah. So, because it's happening so fast and acute. But again, that's preliminary data because, you know, remember, we have to still, this is only, a, you know, two-week outcome. You know, we want to wait and see what the remaining that were still hospitalized, how did they do to see the true number? But you did go, if
0: I'm not mistaken, you did evaluate the records from March 1st 1st to April 5th. Correct. Yes. So so more like five. Um, Okay. I I was also, um, you know, being in the category of uh, um, a male a little bit upper in his years, I was looking at the numbers. uh, the predictors that you were you were indicating, and it did seem to really have to do with a lot with males, a lot with hypertension and diabetes and body mass index. Am I reading that correctly or not?
1: So uh, actually, when we corrected for all the factors, when I mean, there's two types yeah. of analysis, once you know when you do in a study, one of them is incorrected and another is corrected, the corrected analysis did not um put males actually it was older age, diabetes heart disease, black race, hypertension, need for ventilation, and medications to keep your blood pressure up called vasopressors medications, those were the indicators of uh, risk for acute kidney injury. So, you know, maybe for in COVID, there might be a risk factor for men, and people are noticing men and high BMIs, but and even, um, uh, so we, we did not find the BMI or men to be a risk factor.
0: But you did find race.
1: Yes, to be so. the African-American race, yeah, was
0: yeah. uh, that. Right. That seems to be becoming a bigger and bigger piece of the story uh, and, and, and the pandemic is that it does, I mean, at least in the United States, it has hit the African-American community very, very hard.
1: Yes, and especially in the kidney disease world, we already knew this, right? They do have a high preponderance of uh, getting kidney disease, so we were not surprised that Uh, you know, that was a risk factor for kidney disease with COVID as well.
0: And am I correct that you mostly studied, you primarily studied uh, hemodialysis, intermittent hemodialysis and renal replacement therapy. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So we, uh, this is a hospitalized patient who did not have any kidney disease before going in. And we kind of made sure about that. So we studied the, the need for dialysis in the hospital and both, actually, we looked at how many of them required hemodialysis, how many they were on the continuous form of dialysis, and how many of them required, uh, you know, a combination of both because when you get transferred to the ICU, sometimes the type of modality of dialysis does switch to the continuous form. Um, It didn't really matter, um, but it's important for a nephrologist to know how many of them required the type of dialysis that we used, but it also depends on center to center. Some centers don't have a continuous form of dialysis modality. So they're only left with the the regular intermittent hemodialysis modality to treat even the sick patients. Part of the reason why I asked is I was was
0: curious if if there had been urgent start PD involved. Mm -hmm.
1: So we as a division decided to not go with that uh, concept Mm -hmm. uh, only because We had learned from our pulmonary and critical care colleagues that proning the patients, which is putting them on their on their abdomen, um, even if they're on the uh, non-ICU floors and ICU, was actually helping their pulmonary status and the COVID. So if we started doing PD, it would actually be complicated because they were not in the right position to do good PD. And second, we had planned way early and ordered enough supplies and. Uh, you know machines uh to you know make sure we were covered for a very high rate of kidney injury uh, while we had uh, some glitches uh, we actually end of february had planned and uh, bought and uh, initiated a protocol to not have any problems uh, in terms of supplies and demand in terms of dialysis equipment fluids filters uh, personnel nursing staff and um, uh, the nephrologist. I think it's important because if this has the second wave comes and, Mm -hmm. you know, there is another place in in, in the U.S. or the world that has a big impact like New York did, it's very key, very key to plan early and not wait till the surge happens. And I'm so glad our leadership decided to do that way in February and spend extra money and extra time in meetings to get that planning ahead. And we also used other mortalities like a sled and um, uh, borrowed ideas from Vanderbilt University Mm -hmm. and their uh, ideas of doing certain type of nursing to sled ratio. And Mm -hmm. that really helped putting all the nephrologists in the hospital and have only a minimum amount of them in the office also helped with the volume and the stress that our fellows and attendings might have to go through. So really de-stressing them and not letting them carry more than 15 patients, um, that helped. Um, And giving a lot of uh, time to the medical directors of dialysis units and giving them protection and extra help so that they can deal with the outpatient surge of these dialysis patients getting COVID, that is also very important. So I think a lot of planning has to go into effect and, um, Since we had that in place, we didn't really have to get into the PD part. Well, I was going to
0: ask you about recommendations you have um, for others, uh, and for listeners in particular, about planning for a possible wave in the fall and and so forth. And Actually, I think you just gave a very good outline of what you guys did and and what you think
1: worked. Yeah. Um, I mean, two additional things I would say is have – Uh, a point person in nephrology who is your sort of like the keeper for all the supplies, all the nursing staff deployment, and sort of your uh, machines. And that person would actually do a call every day to us and make sure that we are up to date or text that this is the supply issue right now. This is what we're dealing with. It really, really helps. And another person to kind of be the point person to to make sure your televisits visits are going okay and they're orchestrating those well, and the third person for the dialysis component of your uh, division. I think y- delegating the work and giving people power to do things really also inspired a lot of people and gave them that drive that, you know, they're not just sitting in the back seat here, but we are the frontliners here, nephrologists, and are able to, you know, fight this and help our patients.
0: So... I was going to ask you, uh, from that list of things that you were recommending to do, do you have a top three to five recommendations that you really would say are the most critical for for institutions to think about, systems to think about, and to think about?
1: Yes. So I think the first is uh, early, early, early planning, not waiting till uh, the surge happens. Two is, um, you know, getting your fluids and supplies and getting the right people uh from this uh, your institution involved uh, early to get the supplies and even if it's available as a backup and you don't need it be there third is having a key personnel kind of in charge uh, of certain things you know and reporting to you on a directly uh, on a daily basis and uh, four is just you know instead of other parts of medicine that were being redeployed into being in the hospital like uh, cardiologist was going to go do ICU rounds and, you know, rheumatologists were putting, you know, dialysis, uh, were, were being mm-hmm. hospitalists. As a nephrologist, just redeploying within your own practice is bringing the hospital and, you know, giving your other nephrologists a little bit more space and, you know, uh, time to not burn out was probably more important to, of all the things. You
0: had something in your study that caught my eye. You described your urinary results as provocative. Yeah, you use that word provocative. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted you to tell us what you meant by that.
1: Yeah. So the nephrologist will um, quickly understand this. Um, so the type of kidney injury we see with the shock state or these type of ICU. Uh, related to kidney injury is usually something we call acute tubular necrosis or acute tubular injury or ATN. And that's usually not a disease we see with protein loss in the urine or blood in the urine. It's usually not seen with that. Um, so the degree of protein and urine uh, findings we saw was disproportionate to our pathology we were thinking that was going on in these patients. That's why it was provocative, because not many biopsies are being done or, you know, and there's not much description about what exactly is happening in the kidney. I can say that we, I mean, we have unpublished data of the biopsy. We did do a few biopsies on our patients in the ICU, and it is, uh, to the nephrologist out there, it is tubular injury. That's the most common. We found mostly tubular injury. Um, we did find some rare stuff like thrombotic microangiopathy. We found, you know, the already published entities like collapsing glomeropathy, which is a, you know, glomerular disease, which is why we might see some protein in the leakage. But that's rare. I think the most common thing we still see is this tubular injury, and I, we, I can't explain why there is so much protein loss. Um, with that, it's possible because it's happening so rapidly, and this whole ACE2 effect uh, might be leading Mm -hmm. to a tubular loss of protein in a significant amount. Um, It's just my postulation, but without further, you know, scientific uh, studies, we can't really, uh, besides uh, thinking about it and, you know, uh, just making suggestions, nothing else we can say. We have been, and
0: I want to say we, I, I mean, the, the, the committees of the American Society of Nephrology that are really dedicated to making requests to Congress and requests to CMS. Uh, they have been very focused on the need for additional funding to NIDDK specifically for COVID-related issues with the kidney. Um, and we are hoping to get some success with that as we move forward this summer and we'll keep our fingers crossed. I would imagine that was something you would find to be
1: a very useful exercise. Oh, yes. I think it's very important because it might not—it might be helpful not just for COVID-related um, kidney disease, but any sort of viral-associated kidney disease. We might learn so much from everyone's work out there, and NIH supporting uh, that and the organization supporting this type of research will be not just helpful for COVID-related kidney disease, but in general, we will learn so much about um, tubular damage and other virus-associated kidney diseases. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation.
0: I'd like to invite you to kind of share any comments you have, as we wrap it up here, uh, that you would like for the listeners to think about or to be aware of.
1: Well, I just, you know, um, while we were going through all this, you know, everyone was scared at the same time. Everyone had a sense of pride um, because we were all together in this battle against COVID. But there was one of our colleagues and my good friend, Richard Barnett. He had this quote, and I think it just resonates. If it's, if you don't mind, I'll say it. This is sure. literally a battle zone, which we're dealing with. Quite honestly, follow for the most part, could uh, is exhi- you know, exhi- exhilarating. You're living history, he said. Nothing has prepared us for this. Soak it. Hopefully, 40 years from now, you will tell your grandkids how you served on the front lines of the great 2020 pandemic. And you may never again have this opportunity to be involved in something more meaningful again.
0: We really appreciate you joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. um, And we want to keep following your work and see what else comes out of this discussion. Um, And we just can't tell you how much
1: we appreciate your being here today. Thank you. And thank you, ASN, for their time. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.